As I walked out in the streets of Laredo, as I walked out in Laredo one day, I spied a young cowboy all wrapped in white linen, wrapped in white linen. As cold as the clay. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Arts Fuse podcast with Lucas Spiro and Matt Hansen. Uh, Arts Fuse Nicks, we appreciate your support and your love because there are four of you, and that makes it all the more special. It does. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, violence in films. It's not necessarily about violence, it's about the role of the critic and what kind of information that they're going to have to share with you so that you will get a good review of which the RTG specializes in. And we're going to be speaking with Steve Provisor, who is a critic of the Arts Fuse. Uh, you may have heard him on various radio stations in the Boston area. He mostly writes about jazz for The Fuse because The Fuse is possibly the only place that actually covers jazz in the Boston area. So if As you want to know what's going Yeah, I mean, like, like, like thoroughly or stuff. not thoroughly. Yeah. Like, it's, the, it's pretty much the only place you can get it. And uh, if that makes us pretentious fucks, then I'm sorry, you know? <laughs> well, actually, I'm not sorry. No, I'm not, sorry, not sorry. And also, yeah. I mean, jazz is wonderful, so it's it is. not it pretentious is. at all. Who doesn't like the sound of strangling cats coming out of a trombone? Right, right. I'm a big fan of uh, playing the xylophone with blunt instruments myself. <laughs> so, a little of the bop, do beep, do bop, does your heart good. Does the body good. The foundation for that uh, discussion that we have with Steve later on in the program is uh, actually the Coen Brothers film. So, there was a review of that film... Uh, by uh, Arts Fuse film critic Peg Aloy. And the new Coen Brothers film is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. You don't even have to go to the movie theater to watch it because it's on Netflix, which is kind of a weird... Anomaly? Anomaly. Coen Brothers doing Netflix. It kind of feels like they've you know cheapened themselves to uh, or debased themselves to do the, the popular, the easy, the uh, you know whatever. But if you want to watch a movie... Uh, a lot of people use streaming services, of which you can no longer use Filmstruck, but that's another thing. Uh, the Coen Brothers film, Sad Lament for the, the Ballad of so Buster Cru- Scruggs, is a Western. It's a collection of vignettes, mm-hmm. short chapters, uh, all of different tones, different themes, uh, some of them incredibly beautifully done, some of them cartoonish. Uh, the first one is the one that's actually the Ballad of Buster Scruggs played by, uh, and Buster Scruggs is a singing cowboy slash gunslinger, played by Tim Blake Nelson in an impossibly white outfit in the grimy, dirty, duddy, dirty, dusty, bloody, violent West. And then there are a number of other stars in the film. Uh, What's-his-face that writes the poetry at Yale? Uh, James... Oh, uh, Franco. James Franco, James the ubiquitous Franco, and unkillable right, James Franco. Right. And uh, he's in there. Stephen Root's in there. Stephen Root. Uh, Jimmy James from News Radio. In case Jimmy James from News Radio. Mr. Tom Waits. Mr. Tom Waits. Tom Waits. Misery is the river of the world. Everybody row. Which is basically the theme of the film. Pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> actually. It might as well be the subtitle of the film. Yeah. Liam Neeson is in it. Uh, the quadriplegic from Harry Potter. Uh, yep. yep. <laughs> and and um, Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson. Uh, Star studded. Oh yeah, cameos aplenty. Cameos galore. Peg liked the movie. She did. She says she says thank goodness that Netflix is bringing this film into people's living rooms. But if it's possible for you to see this on the big screen, I certainly recommend doing so if only because the cinematography and sound are both so captivating. Netflix viewers who find the first short, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, too silly for their taste. He's got a, it's kind of like a, like a Bugs Bunny almost kind of Oh, sure. Violence. Madcap. Uh, yeah, madcap. Too silly for their taste. It was my least favorite of the six, so, you know, stick around. It gets better if, if you don't like the first one. <laughs> Should resist the urge to click over to something else. That's the other thing about this being on Netflix. You can You can click off it. 
You really can. I hadn't even really thought of that That's before. a really good point, which in a way is almost kind of terrible because it's disposable. When you go to yeah. a theater, you've committed your night to seeing this film. Right. You're there. You're, in, you're engulfed in the film. You're not in your living room where you're staring at the wall and you go get a sandwich or whatever. Right. You've made it an event. Do you stare at the wall? I stare at the wall <laughs> all the time. Uh, the five stories that follow feature some of the finest acting seen on screen this year. And I think the reason why it was... Um, put in theaters was so that some of these actors could possibly be considered for Oscar buzz. I don't think it's, I don't think anybody actually acts enough in the film of a, an extended period of time to actually be considered for any role like that. Yeah, they get scenes. Um, They get scenes, but certainly the cinematography could, could easily be um, nominated. Nominated. Is it Roger Deakins? He does pretty much all their cinematography. He does most of their stuff. Let me like. find out. Yeah. Cinematography by Bruno Del Bono. That's a name. That's a name and That's a That's a name that walks up to you and shakes your hand. That's a name that eats flapjacks. You might know his work from Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, my alma mater. Yeah. Francophonia. I'm a founding <laughs> member. I'm not only a member, I'm also a client. Francophonia. Big Eyes, the one with uh, Christoph Waltz and... And those incredibly tacky paintings. And those incredibly tacky paintings done by... The incredibly tacky painter man. <laughs> Big Eyes with uh, uh, Amy Adams and all that kinds of... Inside Lewin Davis. Okay. Another Cohen. Yep. Uh, that I was very disappointed by. Bunch of other stuff. And Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Okay. How about that? Wow. How about that? Everything comes full circle. Yep. Everything runs in a circular motion. Time is a flat circle. Happiness runs. Happiness Time runs. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. Is that where it goes? Because that's actually not... Like what happens? No, like time goes the other way. Time. If you've experienced time, do anything. Uh-huh. It's in the past. All right, that's <laughs> a five dollar statement right there. Yeah, that's um, that's Steve and his <laughs> band. Steve. And oh, Steve Mr. Miller. Miller. Mr. Oh, yeah. Miller and his band, who apparently has a PhD in literature from Texas University of Texas Austin. So, are you really gonna go up with against academia like that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you are, and you should, and I applaud you. This job, this 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 show is about holding people accountable, <laughs> <laughs> except ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> High quality cinematography, flawless production design, and superb performances at the service of the western genre may or may not please longtime Coen Brothers fans, but the Ballad of Buster Scruggs continues the cinematic verve displayed in True Grit, demonstrating the Coens' consummate skill for reinventing classic genre tropes dovetailing deep affection with inspired reinterpretation but steve has issues with this review because as you will see in the comments section which is the ultimate version of social media the arts views comment section steve says didn't like it he thought there was too much gratuitous violence and that peg alloy as a critic had a duty to tell people about that on our segment well that's just like your opinion man we will talk with Steve Provisor, ArtsFuse critic, about the duty of the critic. Also up on the fuse right now, by Mary Paula Hunter, Gloria, a drama about journalistic hell, Ooh. which is what we what should we're have pretty much in. Should have should have called the podcast journalistic hell. <laughs> uh, Jeff Church plays Dean. Allison Russo is Annie, and Gabriel Greats as Lauren in Gloria. Brandon Jacobs Jenkins tackles a lot in his play, Gloria. His subjects include competition in the journalistic workplace, the death of print media, which is why we're doing a podcast, 20th century demographics, particularly how to usher the bulge of baby boomers out of the workplace. I've been working on that uh, with with great vigor <laughs> in, in my recent life. Mass murder, profiting off survivor guilt, black stereotyping of whites and vice versa, and a few things I may have missed, like how it's much better in the current climate to be good at math as opposed to being adept at English. People used to read, after all. So, uh, journalists are being replaced by mathematicians, which is why journalism is so bad. Shoplifters. Film review by Neil Giordano. Shoplifters is a masterpiece. A masterpiece, everybody. A masterpiece. About the underclass that effortlessly explores emotional complexity and moral contradictions. It's a film by Hirokazu Kore Eda. According to our critic, a new film from Hirokazu Kore Eda is always a gift, not only for the eyes, but for the soul. 
He explores our common humanity with unpredictable and heartbreaking stories of human frailty and redemption, such as the quotidian rhythms of everyday life. Quotidian. Quotidian indeed. Even in these increasingly cold times, apologies to climate change, Cora Ada's compassion manages to maintain its warmth. Shoplifters, uh, winner of the Con Palme d'Or, is a masterpiece about the underclass, drawing less on the naturalistic style of his countryman Yasuzero Ozu, to whom he's often compared, than British social, social dramatist Ken, Ken Loach. Cora Ada forces us to question what is family, the peek into the lives of a makeshift clan a group of outcasts and lost souls in Tokyo's forgotten bottom rung, brought together mostly by circumstance who find respite, kinship, and maybe love for as long as they can make it last. Which is a little bit uh, less cynical than the rest of this episode is going to be, probably. Right. Buckle but, up, kids. Yeah, buck- <laughs> also up on the fuse, a piece from Steve Provisor, who will be joining us in a moment. It's about a jazz book about Dexter Gordon, possibly one of the greatest jazz musicians of all time. No question. Saxophonist Dexter Gordon, Portrait of a Sophisticated Giant, is the title of this one. Maxine Gordon was the last of Dexter Gordon's several wives, and she has written a biography of Gordon, a task with which he charged her before he died in 1990. The saxophonist had actually done some writing on an autobiography before he died, and Maxine Gordon was able to use this material in her book. But while he had written about most of his life, he wrote nothing about the 50s, a period that he refused to talk or write about. Her extensive research illuminates that decade, as well as most of the other episodes in this well-known jazz musician's life. Check that out as well. But now that we've mentioned Steve, we might as well just bring him on. So here he is. I write mostly about jazz, uh, jazz recordings, jazz concerts, and jazz books. And I also write about theater sometimes and film. So uh, thank you for allowing me to come on in this episode and talk about film. Thanks for being here. Steve jumped in on the Arts Fuse uh, comments section of an article or a piece about the Coen Brothers film, The uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And this conversation is generated from that conversation. Uh, the true social media, the only one that really actually counts, is the comments section on the Arts Fuse uh, website. So check it out and please join the conversation. What we had was uh, Matt Hansen, who is our co-host, saying, I just saw this and loved it. I've uh, seen every Cohen film uh, there is. Uh, and this was their best in a decade. Great review. So basically going back, I suppose, to, uh, what was it? Uh, no Country for Old Men was 06 or 07? I couldn't say. No, okay. Uh, uh, since about then, I think Matt thinks this is their best film. Uh, I jumped in and I said I loved it. I thought it was a possibly uh, the the little vignette that had Liam Neeson and the guy that speaks uh, or, or does a, um, a rhetorical entertainment for the various uh, folks in, 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 in Western towns was a sort of critique of the Netflix algorithm as of easy entertainment where the serious stuff gets tossed aside. And then Steve, our special guest, jumps in and says, I can't say I agree with you all about the merits of this movie, but De Gustavus, etc. What I will mention is that the high level of violence obviously wasn't an issue for you, speaking to the critic of this piece, or the critic that wrote this piece. But I think that as a reviewer, you have a responsibility to bring it to the attention of potential viewers. And then we had Eric Nykander, who you probably remember from uh, the episode where we had Matt Christmas on, jump in and say, I disagree that we have that obligation, especially in terms of film. There are myriad resources to determine what kind of potentially objectionable content might be in a movie, least of all the MPAA's ratings board. There are a whole web- there's a whole website devoted to that purpose. Steve comes back. The expectation that a critic's readers are expected to look elsewhere to find pertinent information is not convincing. Eric, but that's exactly it. A film critic's job isn't to provide information. It's to analyze and explore the artistic merits of a piece. Steve gets the final word on this one. So you separate out the degree of violence, not to mention random racism, misogyny, even plot, from the the exigencies of aesthetic analysis. So, uh, uh, Steve, we have you now here in the studio. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what started this conversation and uh, what you think uh, your, your position is? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, first of all, let us note that the comments section 
is a worthwhile, uh, can be, you know, if it's not uh, completely inhabited by, uh, unless it's, uh, you know, scabrous and uh, ridiculous. But um, so it was reasonable, this kind of exchange, although it's very difficult to get uh, subtleties into a, uh, a thread of that kind. My essential point was that as a reader, I want to know about any significant element of this film that would either attract me to it or repel me from it. And uh, I happen to be somebody who is largely repelled by violence. I can take it sometimes, but I don't really... Uh, what one person considers gratuitous, another person doesn't. But I have uh, a relatively low threshold for it. So, and in the past, I, when I've read reviews of movies, and they haven't mentioned what to me are just really episodes of tremendous violence and gore, uh, I felt very betrayed by the review. I thought, really, I need to know about this, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. So the question becomes, you know, what's the value of a review? Is the value of a review just this sort of abstract kind of uh, infra-analysis of something? Uh, I make these decisions all the time in terms of writing about jazz and about music, because uh, I have to try to decide how much the audience knows. In fact, anybody who writes anything has to make that decision. If you write a, a play, you have to know when, when is the curtain going to go up. You know, So how much does the audience know about what you're talking about? And uh, so in the case of film and music, there, there are differences, obviously, but there are still elements that, as a reviewer, you have to decide Am I going to sort of, quote, educate the reader about this? Am I going to make the assumption that they already know about this? Well, one thing I cannot make an assumption about is whether they know the degree of violence or the degree of misogyny or the degree of racism and so on and so on that, that's carried in the script of a film. I, and my, I, my conceive of reviews as being uh, self-contained. Why should I, you know, project that my reader is going to get this other information from some other review? Why am I bothering to write a review if important elements of this are not being discussed in my review and I expect people to find that someplace else? It doesn't make sense to me. This, this, this begs the question, I suppose, in terms of the assumptions that a critic can make when they're, making a when they're, when they're writing a review of something because... I think a lot of people do expect violence from Coen Brothers films specifically. It's practically like a brand in and of itself. Right. You're going to watch a Coen Brothers film, which means it's going to have some themes, some elements, something that you that you may or may not have, have been exposed to before. But we're writing at a time when the Coens have been making films for 35 years, something like that. You know? Yes, and, it's the early 80s. And, 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 yet, and yet you can't, like as you say, think that a person is going to be able to expect a certain level of gratuitous violence, you know, from the script itself. But at the same time, you can expect that if, if, if you've had any exposure, you know, at all to a Coen Brothers film, I think, to a degree. So, well, I think there are ways to write it yeah. that include both possibilities. Mm -hmm. uh, Coen, Coen uh, Brothers film veterans will know that there's a certain amount of violence here. In other words, you acknowledge the fact that people will know that. You don't make them feel stupid. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you let them in. And other people are just beginning to look at Coen Brothers movies. Mm -hmm. And you give them a sense that, listen, you, you know, these people do put a lot of gut, blood, and gore in their films, and this film is no exception. And maybe what you do is you rate it, if you're knowledgeable enough about Coen Brothers movies, you put it somewhere in the scale between one to 10. You know, of the movies that I've seen of them, I would put it on the six and a half scale. Okay, in other words, that would be meaningful to both the newbies and the vets. There's a level of, cartoonishness to the violence in, in some of the vignettes. I was going to say that, yeah. There's, there's definitely a certain kind of quality of violence that they have. Again, violence in this particular Coen Brothers film, not necessarily the point. The point, what is the critic's role in, in you know, yeah. uh, uh, providing information, educating the, 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 the reader of, as a result of their review. Right. Is it the kind of violence that you're going to be 
freaked out by, or is it the kind of violence that's absurd and over the top and cartoonish? And I think the Coen Brothers kind of do both. There's definitely scenes where it's really disturbing for me, and I don't really get that offended by violence per se, unless there's something in the plot that like really builds to it, and it's somebody that like I've actually become emotionally involved with a character that I care about, and then something horrible happens to them then, which is pretty par for the course with the Coen brothers. They like to take these characters and build them up and make you sympathetic to them, and then slam them down mm-hmm. fairly brutally. Um, so then the question is... That is that easy, though, to do with violence as opposed to something else? Yeah, I mean, you can have these emotional... Um, tumblings by characters but to have them like grotesquely destroyed or have their um what they care about most taken away from them like a serious man for example um that can be really intense for people and i think with the cohen's they specialize in a violence that's so over the top that it's kind of a parody of violence i don't well, take it that this seriously. is this is kind of eye of the beholder stuff right and i'm not saying that you know that there aren't ex- aesthetic decisions to be made but it really is a very personal decision and if the reviewer does not set the landscape out then you have no criteria to evaluate what your potential relationship to these various kinds of violence is if the reviewer doesn't tell you it takes it out of your hands and you're stuck there if it's abhorrent to you so I think it, it reminds me of Ty Burr's reviews in the Boston Globe that he used to do, mm-hmm. where he would talk about it in the terms of the rating system, and he'd say, this film is rated R, and he would kind of do sort of a parody of why the film would be rated R. Like, this yeah. film contains gratuitous, mm-hmm. whatever, shots of breasts, or this film contains a, a dog being set on fire, like, specifically telling you these yeah. things, yeah. as sort of kind of a parody of the, like, the puritanism of the censor, of the sensory well, that makes system. sense to me yeah. by by giving people a sense of what those ra- where those ratings come from. I think a lot of people who watch films don't necessarily aren't that educated about what these R and X's mean or you know all of those things. And we all know that so, R can be different depending very, on the Very, very different. In other words... We cut off a head versus right. we show a naked body. Right. To what degree is it sexual versus violent and so on. Um, and, and that might be an evaluation that the critic can say, well, this got an R rating because I believe, probably because it was a certain amount of uh, double entendre or overt sexuality, or there is a certain amount of violence here and so and so and so. It's, it's put into that context. Right. I mean, a review should stand on its own, but it should also be describing the thing that it's talking about. So if the review is going to be responsible, it should let the audience know what the overall tone of the of the art is, what the movie is, the play is, or whatever. The overall, I don't know, attitude that the that the the, the art takes. Yeah. Is it irreverent? Is it sure. s- sarcastic? Is it cynical? Is it sure. so forth? And so mm-hmm. in some cases, this, the Coen brothers have gotten criticized very specifically for being over the top with their cynicism and their misanthropy. And I don't even know if I said that right. And uh, and their <laughs> some um, say misanthropy. Yeah, that's, misanthropy. That's, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, they're they're kind of pervading sense that people are just horrible. Yeah, yeah. Which which the first character, which Buster Scruggs himself, kind of gleefully explains to the viewer in the very beginning of the ballad of Buster Scruggs. He's like, people ain't no damn good. <laughs> well, I think that when I do think that the degree to which the culture already is familiar with a particular subject does, you know, have an influence on how you approach. The review, there are there are things culturally that are so well known and so widely described that it, it doesn't make sense as a reviewer to go in down low when you should be really coming in at, at the top and understanding that all of this stuff already exists. But it's it's usually more difficult to gauge that from writing about um, the jazz perspective. And any of the reviewers in Arts Fuse try to evaluate how much do the readers of Arts Fuse know about this thing that they're reading about. I struggle with that a lot as a writer. It's not easy to know because, right. you know, you go to the website, there's dance, there's theater, there's music of different kinds. And people, you assume, once they're on the website, you hope, maybe they're going for the jazz reviews, but the, you know, a theatrical uh, review catches their eye and they're moving into an area that they know something less about. 
So that puts each of us as a as a reviewer in a little bit of a quandary. And it, what it does for me is it, it tends to make it a little bit less esoteric than I would otherwise make it. I would, I, I'm accused of this anyway, but I would use a first name or a last name, which is in common currency in the jazz world, and people not familiar with the, you know, or if I say train, so everybody in jazz train. You can expect a jazz bird, you know, just sort of shorthands that are so well known, but many others are much more marginal, and and so I've sort of learned to use both names and kind of give a little more information to people because I can't necessarily expect that they know. And and in your Cohen Brothers reviews, you know, it's the same kind of thing. You know, some people will know it, and mm-hmm. other people will not mm-hmm. know the canon. So, right. If you say it's a Western, there's a certain amount. I ask this to my students at UMass Boston, and we'll watch. We watch the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, mm-hmm. and I was like, so it's a Western. So we talked about genre, and so mm-hmm. it's like, what do you expect when you know that the movie's going to be in this genre? That's yeah. what I was going to ask because yeah. I think this particular film that that started this discussion is is a film that is. To not mention violence in a review is actually a little bit strange when you think about the context of this film. Yeah. Because this is a film that investigates violence in the West and its right. and its and its role in foundational in the foundational mythos of American culture. And the fact that he deals straightforwardly with Indians, American Indians as enemies, and that's it with none of the other kinds of brushes, brush strokes of you know, hey, we were an imperialist country taking over their lands. That's not what they do in this movie. To me, that is a very meaningful and something that should have been talked about, you know, in totally. terms of the violence. It's certainly it was grappled on in the Western genre for decades. John Ford was criticized, of course, from the searchers. Right. The Comanches are essentially just, you know, these invading kind yeah, of Yeah, we just had another film this year, Captives, with, um, uh, 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 what's his name, the, the Batman guy, uh, Christian Bale, oh. was in a film called Captives. Which is literally about going through like it's the same Western story that you ever had. You told me he's, about this. He's escorting a uh, uh, a Native American chief and his family back to his ancestral home so he can die and get buried where he wants to get buried. And the entire time he's just shooting Native Americans as they go. Right. And then he and right. the, the Native American okay. get to the end of it and they're like, "We're friends now." <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, yeah, totally. Right. No, don't worry about it. You know, yeah, so right. back and tell. Right, right. We all okay. we all have our weird moments. <laughs> yeah, and then so. and then some people like I mean, and then John Ford specifically made uh, Cheyenne Autumn, which was to rec- was which to uh, to fix the fact that. Indians yep. have been treated as sort of, in, as James Baldwin said, you know, you root for Gary Cooper in the movies growing up until you realize you're the Indians. Yeah. You know, he's the hero. And then he, for somebody like him, at least for Baldwin or somebody who's on the margins or whatever, starts to realize, hey, wait a minute. You know, I'm cheering on the guy who's killing people who are more like me. Do yeah. we think that the Coens are, they're not unselfconscious filmmakers. So, I think they're one hundred percent self conscious. You know, they're highly self conscious. So, you know, the business about the the Indians is, you know, one imputes a certain meta level to it. But it it's a very debatable sort of uh element of that movie. It's something that you can surely extract and talk about as as uh something that would have either a positive or negative effect on your view of the movie. I had kind of been bleached dry by what preceded it in terms of so many completely gratuitous killings that at that point, to some degree, I had kind of been desensitized to the whole idea of people just, you know, being offed sort of very blithely. Uh, But I was very conscious nonetheless that they, I, I didn't quite see what their point was. I, I didn't get it exactly, and I think that if I had gotten it, it would have made me like the movie more than I did. I didn't go into the other aspects of why I didn't like the movie. I said, Ducustibus non disputatum, because it's such an enormous discussion. I only wanted to bring out that one thing about the violence, but indeed there were many other aspects of the movie that could be debated. In a, in a way... Getting through to that part of the film where you've essentially been desensitized to the gratuitous violence that's come before, so you're not really watching it there. In a way, that that might be the the general film viewing culture that we live in, though, as well, yeah. where we've seen everything from you know 
the John Ford movies, the taxi driver to the Coen brothers, yeah. that we've gotten to the point where we don't even recognize it anymore. And Well, I think there's a generational aspect to that. You know, m- my daughter watches movies that I would never, ever subject myself to, and I think it's pretty common in her cohort. You know, in the millennial cohort. It's how much you've been exposed to this yeah. kind of stuff before. Yeah. I mean, if you're watching something in 1950 and you see someone's yeah. head get blown off, you're yeah. blown away. That's right. Pun intended. People are sleeping <laughs> in double beds. You don't hear the word abortion. Uh, right. You know. right, 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 right. Nakedness, whatever. Well, yeah. the, the number of times an abortion or the word abortion was used could have been used to determine what rating a thing got. Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. If it was used at all. Yeah. I think the generational thing is really interesting. That's part of how I feel about the Coens as well. I feel like for people... Like myself, who did grow up watching Coen Brothers movies and was first told they were amazing by the media that fell head over heels for Fargo yeah. in the 90s. I'm a, I, was, I came of age in the 90s. And so I think with the violence in that respect, there's the sense of we've all seen it on TV a hundred times. And we all know that we've seen it on TV a hundred times. We've been told that we've been seeing it on TV a hundred times. But with the, with the Coen Brothers, I think what's interesting about them that, that, that connects, this is why people, I think, of at least my generation really connected with them, is the sense of the absurdism. And I think people of my, whatever, age group or generation or whatever you want to call it, have kind of accepted a level of pitiless absurdism in the universe mm-hmm. pretty young. Mm. And so it's violence, sure, but it's also the sense of like, like the scene where James Franco's bank robber is about to get hung. Yeah. And right, he does, there's that moment, and then he says, "Oh, there's a pretty girl in the audience." And usually, movies it'll be like she smiles at him, or she, he's his, you know, she's his long lost love, and she's gonna see him one last time. And it's all very sweet, and the music swells. Instead, mm-hmm. it's chunk, bye, kid, done. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think I don't know quite. I have some theories about why that is, but I think for people coming, I don't know if they were Generation X or what. I was born in 1981. I don't even really think I'm Generation X, but there's a certain level of just life is miserable. And we all kind of have to get through it for people of a certain age has been kind of have imbued that with their mother's milk. And so part of the way you get through that is like with um, really sarcastic laughter. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, uh, you know, what? Uh, although I'm, I would say that I'm old enough to have seen at least two or three reiterations of the coarsening of the culture debate you know right, i have right. seen this that doesn't mean that the, it's not getting more and more coarse but there's also a way in which people use that uh, expression the golden age of something there really has never been a golden age of of refinement in america or possibly in any country this this has always been a very violent place totally uh and and so I'm less likely to, uh, to to be able to say that I understand the relationship between uh, the sort of uh, the distancing from violence that you're kind of describing, and 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 the sort of evolution of this culture in general. I don't really know. I, you know, we see so many gun deaths that. At the same time, that's obvious sign of coarsening. At the same time, we're also retreating from that sheer bombardment of violence. So I, that's I a great point. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, I, unfortunately, I have to take my leave. Right. So uh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it a lot. That has that has been Steve Provisor, <laughs> Arts Fuse critic. Uh, joining us for uh, uh, a segment of, well, that's just like your opinion, man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As I was a-walking down by the lock As I was a-walking one morning of late Who should I spy but my own dear comrade Wrapped up in flannel, so hard is his fate I boldly stepped up to, and kindly did ask him, Why are you wrapped in flannel so white? My body is injured, and sadly disordered, All by a young woman, my own heart's delight. So, I think... With with violence and with with a generational thing, there's a sense of a cosmic pessimism. There's the sense with Coen Brothers' movies, especially, but also like Tarantino and lots of other people, 
And I think that became kind of the Hollywood mode for a while. After the after those kind of quote unquote outsiders became insiders, people were like, "Get me absurd violence." Right? The the Hollywood cigar choppers were like, "Nah, the kids like violence, right? They want hyper stylized violence." So you see all these different movies where it's like... They want meta-violence. Yeah, exactly. I want the creepiest, craziest thing happening all the time. And that's my edge. That's my sense of hipness. And I think for at least people of whatever generation I am, people who come up in the 90s and and beyond have taken... And I see this from students that I talk to. All people that matter grew up in the 90s. Oh, of course. The only people (laughs) who know anything grew up in the 90s. Uh, The only people with any kind of cultural literacy whatsoever grew up in the 90s. Um, everybody dance now. Um, the CNC Music Factory generation. So anyway, uh, I think that there's a sense that there's a cosmic pessimism. There's that life doesn't make any sense. There's no hope ultimately. Every, look, Louis C.K. used to talk about this all the time. Now, of course, he's disgraced. Problematic. Problematic indeed. <laughs> but let's just just rewind a bit before everybody realized he was a creep. And we think about his stand-up and how everybody embraced him and talked about how brave he was and how funny he was and how um, how unafraid to t- tell it like it is he was. And all he ever talked about was how life was miserable. There's no point to anything. You're going to die and nothing matters. And we all try to distract ourselves from that. That was part of the reason why he got famous, why he kind of broke through. Because people were like, yeah, there's a guy who knows what's going on. He did it by talking about his children. Absolutely, yeah. Take the most precious thing you have and talk about how one day they're going to rot. And, and that... That kind of comedy, that really dark comedy, is something I think a lot of people take for granted now. And so that is in this sort of cosmic sense. In a social, political sense, the whole thing about, you know, uh, rampant gun violence and and hate and and school shootings and, and how we become so accustomed to that, it reminds me of a quote by Mr. Joseph Stalin. Um, and I don't quote him positively or to endorse him, and I'll, I'll say why in a second. Because Stalin's famous for saying the death of a million people is a statistic, the death of one person is a tragedy. And on one level, I think he is onto something. In the sense, not in the sense that he means it, which is like, who cares if we kill a million people? He means it, in one sense, it's an accurate statement because we hear on the news all the time. X number of people X number of people were shot in... East Bumfuckistan. Or we don't hear it on the news. Or we don't even hear it on the news. And so we see a picture of some starving baby in Yemen that's happening right now, and people are like, oh, that's too bad. And they just go about their business. Not even recognizing their complicity in Right. Not in recognizing that, their complicity their complicity in it. Or complacency, sorry. Or complacency, their complicity, or their complacency, <laughs> all right, in this. And to some extent, I don't blame people because I don't like to think I'm complicit in baby murder, right? And killing children. Starting I got bad children. news for you. <laughs> no, no, no. Right, right. But I mean, look, John and Jane Q. Public don't really like to go through their day eating their Cheerios thinking, geez, you know, my government's responsible for this. I may have voted for the guy that precipitated this. I can, appre- I can understand that, right? Um, I can at least appreciate that people come from that. I don't think it's enough, but I, I can see how people feel that way. But so we hear so the thing is is like you know it's the history of man is the history of woe i mean it's you know you hear these stories and if it's not if it's not yemen it's rwanda if it's not rwanda it's wherever and so the sense that you just it's just meaningless statistics Twenty five thousand people died yesterday in wherever in some country you never heard of you you hear that and you say god that's too bad but the fact that it's twenty five thousand people and it's in bulk like that you're like okay that's just numbers to you it's abstract right it's abstract but of course, and I want to emphasize this, Stalin is profoundly wrong, right? And shows the inner psychosis of, um, of, of the psychotic aspect of totalitarian thinking, which is that people are just numbers on a page. It's just, oh, yeah, we killed a whole bunch of people in wherever. And what's for, you know, who cares? What's for breakfast? What's profoundly wrong about that, morally intellectually logically in every single possible conceivable way what's really wrong about that is that no it's actually 25,000 little tragedies it's not even though <coughs> it's like oh that was jerry right he had a yeah. family he had things that he right. liked oh that's jane she was so excited about whatever and so once those people become humanized then you start to realize oh my god they're killing human beings not just numbers on a page uh, i'm thinking about what they do on um september 11th these days is the 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 people in New York City get together and they just read all the names off a list. Right. Or if you look at um the uh the Vietnam Memorial Wall, right. Right. you know it's 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 just people's names. Yeah. You know uh uh and 
in a sense, I've seen the the, the Vietnam uh, Wall a number of times, and yep. at different times that I've seen it, I've thought about the humanity of each individual person, but I've also thought about the senselessness, and I've also thought about the abstraction, because it is an abstract slate of, of, of marble in which you yourself are reflected in, you know, the black abyss. Yep. You know, with what with the name staring back at you. And Yusef Kumanyakar wrote a beautiful poem about that. And and you mentioned the the psychopathy of the totalitarian state and how it looks at numbers or people as numbers on a ledger or uh you know things in a in a budget that's either in balance or not. Right. It's not it's not particular to the totalitarian mindset. No, by no means. We 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 pretend we live in a democracy here and we, as we've you know characterized multiple times in the last ten minutes, talked about Jane and John Doe eating their Cheerios, not thinking about their co- uh, co- uh, complicit you know support for the starvation of a, of a Yemeni child. And I, I tried to bring up stuff like this you know very recently because we just had the death of GHW uh, Bush, and I don't like that guy. And a lot of people that would on any given day say that they don't like this guy because he's dead, lionize him and put him in a canon of American history that's complete and utter bullshit. And yet and yet Well they're all really excited about the fact that he was nice to people. Which people? Which is like no no, no right, <laughs> but he was nice to hang out with. Like I don't I, I A lot of powerful rich people Donald Trump is fun to hang out with for a lot of people. Sure. I just watched no, the Russell I, Brand bol- uh, uh, stupid thing that he has on Netflix now because he doesn't have any money because they won't hire him to do uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall Part 2. But he says, I met Donald Trump, and he was really nice to me. Yeah. You know, these right. these these rich, powerful, egomaniacal people. No, a lot of people say that. They're like, oh, I met him before he went into politics. It right. was cool. We talked shit. We, we made fun of people whenever. It was fun. No, no, but it's it's, it's that sense also, and this is kind of what Steve was getting at, I think, to a certain extent, of... Um, oh no but with bush it's like there's that sense that he was civil political civility (laughs) which i mean right no so it's funny how starved people are for this quote-unquote civility that they're going to jump and with with, because of who's president right and with mccain it was the same thing they were like oh he was so civil he was so civil oh civility precious civility what will we do without our precious civility which I've always believed is kind of silly. I mean, obviously, there's a certain level of just human politeness you need to have, but civility qua civility is bullshit. Especially when we're talking about people that are that are active participants in high crimes and the death of tens of thousands, if not millions of people. Sure. Yeah. So Cohen Brothers. Um, so Cohen Brothers, yeah. What's so interesting, too, actually, with the Cohen Brothers is funny, is that they're not terribly political. Right? They're not, they're not flag wavers, really. They have a sense that everything's bullshit anyway. Right. I think. One of the reasons why I think a lot of their films are, even the ones that aren't explicitly westerns. A lot of them are westerns, yeah. is because they're talking about <clears throat> the cheapness and the uh, the the absolute absurdity of human existence. Mm-hmm. Which, if it's just bang bang bang, you know, mow them down and just kill them. Mm-hmm. If that's the you know, if that's what they think that existence is, which in a lot of ways, life is just being lined up in a in a uh, in a row and waiting for your turn to you know mm-hmm. be executed by time. Mm-hmm then then yeah that's that's but nothing that's, matters that's a that's 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 ultimately a cynicism that that is uh really hard to sort of break out of right yeah and, and ultimately and like, they've been and they've been hitting this you know nail on the head for a long oh ass yeah fucking over time. and over and over you again know? even in the comedies even yeah. in the big lebowski which yeah. the shirt you're proudly wearing today yeah uh you know and they're funny movies it's all the absurdity mm-hmm. and, and the people in charge are, are evil and just everyone's a scum da- a scumbag. And so there's a sense that why bother with any of this? And it's a corrosive pessimism. I happen to not personally share it. Cosmically, I share it. The universe is absurd. But I don't think that about people. I think of it more the way I reason the reason I enjoy Coen Brothers movies philosophically is because I think cosmically they're on point. But I don't believe that people are inherently evil. I don't think people are just a bunch of horrible, uh, vain, gl- greedy, you know, uh, opportunistic scumbags. I don't. See, I think they are, and <clears throat> I don't. I don't. I don't pass. Maybe that's because you're a scumbag. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm projecting here. <laughs> I don't. I'm a nice guy. I don't know why everybody <laughs> else isn't a nice guy. I don't pass moral judgment though on that. I. I think. I think it's very important to 
to my own sort of understanding of the universe is that yes we all suck but that doesn't mean that we don't try to make the world a better place it's because we suck that we have to lean on each other to try to make the world a better place yeah to make beautiful things because to, nothing to, is fair to, yeah. we need to fight to make right. it more fair i agree with that i really do and so it, it's, it's it's kind of squaring a a circle a little bit when you say well if 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 you think every individual person is like this then why would you bother with the thing but the purpose of my particular kind of cynicism, the kind of art that I consume, the kind of media that I consume, the fact that I I don't want to remember George Bush as anything, or George H. W. Bush, or both of them actually as anything other than a war criminal. Uh, some people might say that was somebody's dad, that was somebody's grandfather. You know, he was nice to hang out with. That's a human being that's dead now. You shouldn't celebrate that. But I think it's more. I think that's more cynical than remembering him for the things that he actually did. And we can't just whitewash history. I would rather, you know, be up in somebody's face and say, no, let's talk about depleted uranium and uh, uh, Iraqi uh, instances of childhood cancer that are a direct result of decisions that that person made. I don't want to talk about anything else. Iran-Contra. Iran-Contra. He ran the CIA in the 80s. That's what Wild and Wooly. Well, no, not in the 80s. I think it was... um, Yeah, he ran in the 80s. Mid-80s, I think. No, it was uh, the end of the seventies. Oh, 70s. William Casey. He only he he was only he was only the head of the CIA for a year. Really? And then he was well. And then he was um, vice president. It's interesting too to talk about cynicism. How I, I've been thinking about this lately is that George Walker Bush has had this long. I mean, Herbert Walker Bush has had this long, uh, drawn out, lying in state speech after speech, et cetera, et cetera. All these think pieces, all this journalism about what a nice guy he was, and statesmanlike, and da 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 da. And the same thing happened with McCain. And what I find interesting about that, to a certain extent, ironic and cynical indeed, is how these figures, McCain, Bush, are lionized in death, pilloried in life. Mm-hmm. The right wing devoured both of these guys because they didn't feel like they were sufficiently conservative. On multiple occasions, John McCain was was knocked pillar to post. Think about the the two of these by the guys, GOP. Two of these guys that are some of the worst people on the planet. Not bad enough for the GOP. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> they were like, "Yeah, you know what? You're actually kind of a pussy." George W. and Walker Bush, by the way, George Herbert Walker, two middle names Bush, legitimately had courageous war war service, and as did as did McCain. So these guys actually did go through way more of an ordeal than fucking george walker bush ever did or that carl rove ever did or any of those idiot pundits ever did right they actually did do some things that are that are uh respectable morally Eh. respectable that were challenging Eh. yeah no i don't want to hear this bullshit (laughs) go to a fucking vietnamese prison camp for 10 years and get your balls tortured off every day and then come back and talk to me about how mccain it doesn't matter my point is the the republicans are the people who are doing that they were like you know what we don't care they literally spread um, complete racist lies against McCain in the primary. They called Herbert Walker, two middle names Bush, uh, a wimp and an accommodationist. And they devoured him once he had the audacity to raise taxes because he had to because he had to pay the bill for the Reagan melee for the past eight years. So it's so funny to me how when they were actually alive and could have used some help, the GOP slapped them in the face. And now that they're dead... And they're out of the way politically, which the Trump administration even jokingly referred to for a while. They're like, McCain's dead anyway. Who cares? Now that they're dead, we we celebrate. Now we're like, oh, they're such great men. It's disgusting. Hence, disgusting. <clears throat> hence uh, cynical, gratuitous violence in cinema. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's interesting for me when we go back to the movie? When we go, one of the, the <laughs> parts in the film for me that was the most... There were two parts where I do think the Coen brothers, I don't, I think they're cosmic pessimists, but I don't think they have no soul. I think they have a sense of sensitivity and I think they have a spirit and they have a, a spirit of, um, of poetic uh, understanding. Or they're perpetually bamboozled by their lack of one. Could be. For me, I feel like there are moments where they show a heart and then they remind themselves that the world doesn't care. A heart, yes, but, yeah. but, but I think... Films like uh, A Serious Man and stuff <clears throat> show that uh, they're perpetually perplexed by by the, the absolute utter absurdity of the cosmos and the fact that they think that there's no real place for the individual in it other than 
you know, having a heart, maybe. You Stoic know? endurance. I mean, you know, there's Margie a, Gunderson th- is one of the yeah. best characters they ever created. And part of the reason is because she's in this awful, cruel, absurd world and she right. just mut- putters through. And she does it with grace and tact and skill, you know? And that's and it was funny when Frances McDormand was like, why aren't you going to write me a character? And they were like, okay, you're a pregnant cop in, in Minnesota. And she's like, what? And she gets her Oscar. It's one of the greatest characters they've ever come up with, right? The dude. The dude doesn't hurt anybody. The dude abides. The dude abides, and he doesn't hurt anybody. He's not out to hurt anybody. He doesn't have an agenda. I read an article about what he actually might actually be, which is a, a particular figure <coughs> in um in, in Jewish culture, which is a, uh, a it's almost like a, like a Jewish bodhisattva or something. Oh, which is a people that exist in the world that kind of just by their mere existence keep some sort of cosmic balance. Cool. And so cool. that's what the dude abide actually you know means is that. He can't really be anything other than whatever he is, uh-huh. and his the utter absurdity of the fact that he can't necessarily recognize his place in the universe, and yet he still abides anyway, is like Nirvana. Sure, you know? yeah, he's in, he's in, he's reached enlightenment. Yeah. yeah, so I think with with Scruggs, with Buster Scruggs, the scene with the armless, legless poet. That was one of the most powerful little short got films I've ever seen. Right in the in the gut, right in the got me in the feels. Apparently, that dude was in Harry Potter. Apparently, he was too. Yeah. <laughs> but since I have no truck with mainstream tastes and I'm an uh, irredeemable elitist, I had no idea who was in Harry Potter. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> I just never saw Harry Potter. I saw the first. I saw two of the movies. There was a Tom Waits song in one of them. Sorry, I sorry. Really sorry. Awesome. If you're an irredeemable elitist, then we have to change the format of this show to if, redeeming elitists. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm an irredeemable elitist, I gotta at least change my pants. So, um, with with our he- with our armless, legless poet reciting beautiful, reciting beautifully, right? Some of the great writing: Shakespeare, Shelley, the Declaration, uh, not, not the Declaration of Independence, um, the Gettysburg Address, mm-hmm. right? I-, I saw that as poignant. Maybe that's me being sentimental. I don't know. But this guy is reciting this stuff passionately and beautifully with nothing else but his mouth to to live on mm-hmm. to wizened old delirious uncomprehending prospectors by huddled by fires in the middle of God knows and less God. and less of them too like and less and less of them like that. the more he the more he uh, the more he uh, uh, we as the, that that particular short film goes on the less people are actually interested in what he has to say. And it's not necessarily what he has to say, but he's he's re- just the 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 art of recitation and rhetoric and oratory, mm-hmm. and saying these are important words that I need to share with people, and the fact that less and less people like them, and then eventually he's replaced by a chicken that can you know do fake math, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you know, right? Like I hard to get past the cosmic pessimism in that, right? And. And that, that that film was, or that that short film was was particularly, um, that chapter of the film, particularly good because it it ends in a very typical Coen Brothers way, right? Which is, again, he's disposable. Sure is. And and he's disposed of, and that's not really a spoiler because everybody in this fucking movie gets disposed in one way or dispatched, you know, irreverently at one point or another. Not everybody. Uh, not everybody, but that's you know, yeah, that's the that's that's what the Western is. It's it's. It's the founding myth of this country, which is based on violence, death, and, you know, disposability in search of something lasting, beautiful, perfect, and pure. And you can't do that because the actual act of getting to that point, in this case, you know, oratory for the sake of, you know, profit, as opposed to, um, but, but, or profit off of somebody else's labor that somebody else is able to uh, uh, extract from you, is is quite powerfully a nice little neat critique even though the film is told in a very sincere and not very it's not it's not an obvious critique in and of itself and i think that's kind of the power of the coen brothers and so their cynicism allows them to say well why don't we just like turn a mirror on something in in a little bit of a distorted way that shows back to the world because what is what is cinema than you know a group of 150 people in a room looking at a mirror of themselves as culture. Like this is, this is it, you know, this is what we are. And, and then saying, we don't give a shit about the meaning of the important words in the world. We care about the quick, easy buck and the, the, 
easy entertainment of the chicken that does the math. I honestly think that that was a critique of Netflix, that little short film. People have been saying that. Oh, have they? Oh, yeah. So they've stolen my idea? Yeah. I mean, it's terrible how they keep doing that. I know. I mean, <laughs> maybe I should write about what I think and put <laughs> it on the internet. <laughs> if only there was an outlet for your great ideas that are constantly being stolen. So the fact that this is, we haven't even talked about the fact that this is a Netflix film. That in and of itself is weird because Coen Brothers Netflix, you're just like, what the hell is this? This this seems like anathema to uh, the idea of, of, of cinema because not like Netflix hasn't made good movies, but it's also like the next thing and everybody's getting the, into some way or another the made-for-internet movie or the made-for-internet television Pe- show. Movies are barely in the theaters these days. Right. They, 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 they give they, them a short run for right. Oscar consideration and then they hustle off right. to Netflix. Well, that's just it. So... Netflix hasn't been given Oscar consideration for films that they've made because they don't put them in movies mm-hmm. or in, in theaters. And apparently mm-hmm. that's a, a an important thing. So as much as I want the theater to still be a thing, because that's also what this particular short vignette from the from the Ballad of Buster Scruggs is about, is that that person that's literally just a mouth, just a voice, very mm-hmm. Bakettian kind of character where, totally. where you know, he's got um uh, not I. Uh, where the the character in the film is just a mouth right. talking, or sorry, the character in the Beckett play is just a mouth. This guy's essentially just a mouth, you know. Right. And uh, he's just he's just words on a stage. That gets replaced by the the, the chicken character, who did a great job, by the way. Oscar consideration. It was extremely um, <laughs> convincing, <laughs> profoundly authentic. That was um, uh, Tony Shalhoub. Tony Shalhoub, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Tony his, Shalhoub was plays the chicken in, in his <laughs> breathtaking role as a industrious poultry. And what's inter- what what got me too is that Liam Neeson at the end of the vignette, as he's walking over to the cart to toss his former prize pig overboard. Mm-hmm. His, what is it called? Uh, meal ticket. It's called even more brutally. It's called meal ticket. <laughs> oh yeah, that's yeah. Just bam. Um, there's this look on his face. Of like, all right, I gotta sell it to this kid. Hey, we're gonna go look at the river for a second. Yeah, you know, b- before there's that happens, a weary like, smile that yeah. he makes of like, all right, so he's sad, and then there's like a turn in his face, like, okay. The order though knows what's gonna happen. Oh, he's got to. He's he he. You can see in the shot, he goes. There's a moment where he realizes what's gonna happen, and he goes, oh, and he knows he can't do anything about it. He's out there alone. He's got no arms and legs. <laughs> and like literally no arms and legs and he has literally no arms and legs. he knows that this is uh he knows that this is his fate mm-hmm. you know and i didn't and see the, that uh, as a netflix thing i saw that as a market thing like people wouldn't show up for res- recitations mm-hmm. of shelley and lincoln they'd show up for a chicken that can count yeah so I don't know if that's net. I could totally see that as a Netflix thing, but I saw that as like a, you know what, like when Shelly pays the bills, we'll have Shelly, which I disagree with profoundly. By the way, I think Shelly can totally pay the bills, even if it can't. My my big thing is that we need more uselessness in yeah. the world because the the more useless something is to the the machinations of capitalism, the better artwork it probably is, <laughs> and yeah. and and that sucks because people got to make. You know, people got to feed the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm you're owing money all over town, right? Especially to known pornographers, and that's I mean, cool. And that's cool, you know. But she's got to feed the monkey, right? Um, but at the same time, like, right? It, it's harder and harder and harder to make something that criticizes the system that gives you your bread. You know, this is why people hate the NFL for protesting. You know, it's like why would we? Why would we want to listen to what you say? We've given you everything, and they forget that. No, these people have literally given us everything. Mm-hmm. They've given us the, you know, two to eight best years of their you know physical existence, mm-hmm. and they get uh, a bunch of money all at once that usually disappears at a certain point. Most NFL stars, you know, within a few years are broke. And then uh, they've got no other skills, and they've got traumatic brain damage, mm-hmm. and they got a bum knee, and they're thrown to yeah. the winds. And we forget, Actors, and, you know, yeah. There was that whole story about the guy who was on the Cosby Show, who was bagging groceries at Trader Bill Joe's. Bill Cosby? <laughs> no, Bill Cosby. <laughs> he's, not he's got problems with his own. Actually, <laughs> I looked it up. Uh, Bill Cosby's actually not a, not a great guy. Uh, no, it was the guy who played Theo's friend. I forgot his name. He's very recognizable. 
But the Cosby show checks dried up because they pulled all the syndication because Bill Cosby is an asshole. And so the guy was like bagging groceries. And there was a little one of those like stupid tabloid news things about like the guy from the Cosby show is bagging groceries at Trader Joe's. You hear that sag? Yeah. Getting better contracts for you. Right. And then there was parts. (laughs) Yeah. And then there was an article about it where they said, you know, actually like he's. So what if he's bagging groceries? It's, you know, he's he's working. Who, who? Why judge him? And he was also apparently working in some theater company. He's doing. He's doing it. Yeah. Who said a, a TV star has to uh, right has sit to around? Do, yeah. Has to do anything other than bag cocktails groceries. the rest of his yeah, day yeah. Or days. Right. And so and then people rallied and now he's got a bunch of roles and he, he he was buoyed. But it's that sense of like you were a star and now you're nothing. And America just grinds these poor schmoes out. I mean, if you ever listen to the podcast, I mean, obviously this podcast should be the number one podcast in everyone's feed and should be the, the primary source for podcast joys. But if you ever have the time for another podcast, the You Must Remember This podcast with Karina Longworth, who I'm hoping to interview for the Arts View soon, um, talks about the lost histories of Hollywood and how you know a lot of these people are huge stars in 1932 or 1945 and they have a few movies and they become kind of... Uh, celebrities and their sex symbols or whatever. Sunset and then, Boulevard. Yeah, exactly. It's like the movie Sunset Boulevard and they all just, not all of them, but many of them just fade into into whatever. Whatever happened to uh, uh, Small Jane. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's not and the name of that film. No. I do know what the Baby name of that film is. Yeah, I yeah. do know what the name of that film is. Yeah. <laughs> sister, sister, why so, oh, oh so fair, why is there blood within your, all on your hair or something like that. Um, yeah, and that's that sense of America uses you and abuses you, and then they throw you away. Or if you make it really huge, your Elvises, your Michael Jacksons, your John Lennons, they'll tear you limb from limb. You either get huge for a year, and then you live off into no- nothing for the rest of your life, or you make it ultra huge, and people just tear you to smithereens. But all, I think the the other scene that was really moving to me well then, okay, wait. There's actually so there's a scene. Let's get let's leave the finale to the finale. The scene with Tom Waits. The your, scene your or the the, the, the short film. The the excerpt the the chapter the chapter yeah yeah. I like how he's just looking for the pocket because that's also like a uh, musical term. It is when you're oh, grooving. That's I never thought about that. When you're, you're grooving, in you're, in, you're in the pocket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so Tom Waits is never just looking to be. He's just that. looking to be in the pocket. Yeah, like, he wants yeah, to you find are, Mr. Yeah. Pocket. <laughs> Yeah, there, Mr. Pocket. Uh, yeah, and and that again is the greed. But he gets, but he gets away with it. He he, he survives. Does, yeah. He does. He does make it out. Well, we we he survives that bit. You know, I right? Think but I mean, we don't he, see him die. He, he, so he, ambig- he ambiguously uh, wanders yes. off into the into the woods. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, we don't see him die, so that's that's something. And so you know, and there's that moment where he finds it, and then the other guy finds him shoots him in the back and waits and waits and waits to see if he'll get up and he does not get up and then turns out he was actually playing possum and so again the bleakness the sadism the darkness the snark but he does make it out which is nice which is something uh i appreciate that and um so then edit 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 and then there's the finale then there's the finale uh, and they're all debating about the nature of man. Mm-hmm. I liked the old prospector who kept saying, people are like ferrets. Right. People are like ferrets. Right. I know nothing of the ferret, the noble ferret. But it's just funny to say that people are like ferrets. Maybe the Coen brothers probably know something about ferrets. I don't know. I don't, I don't actually myself know anything about them. Like, do they have a short memory or something? Or are they like resilient? I think they or? can uh, turn around in a narrow tube. so obviously a lot like people (laughs) we're done You never, you never, you never go to. Uh... That's the funniest goddamn thing I've ever heard in my life. Well, it's not even no, and I, I don't even quite know why. I mean, who knows why things are funny? But it's just, are people like ferrets? What, what's it, what's, it, what's unique to the ferret? I, I, 
I, I even hedged. <laughs> I, I'm not even certain. I see. I'm not even <laughs> sure if that's true or not. Please subscribe to the Arts Peace Podcast. The Arts Views reviews 17 hours of ferret videos on YouTube. <laughs> That's a very Coen Brothers like comment, too. It's like, aren't people like ferrets? Like, do ferrets have some kind of interesting trait? I, I think they could turn around in a narrow tube. So like us. Never been to PetSmart and watched the ferrets turn around in a narrow tube? <laughs> you ever been a child of the 90s? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know, man. People are like ferrets. Um, And there's that song yeah, that, that Gleason, Gleason sings, sings, the old yeah. Irish song. Yeah. Nothing, nobody does it quite like the Irish. About a guy dying of syphilis yeah. before his time. I didn't even realize it was syphilis and not pointed that out. And um, he's singing about how, like, carry me to my grave with, with like 10 pretty girls to carry my grave carrying a dozen roses each to cover the smell that beauty that perfect perfect detail which is so like i don't know it's so grotesque and poignant and kind of funny but yet it comes through as sort of wistful it's quite a moment i thought and then the sense that they just go to this mysterious building, which is obviously the afterlife or death or whatever it is. It's definitely the the, the next stop to the next world. And um, he just adjusts his hat and goes walking off into the darkness, which has that wonderful comedy to it and sort of Chaplin-esque humor and is also poised on the lip of the cruel indifference of the universe. <laughs> Just a few footnotes for this episode. The film with Christian Bale is not called Captives, but Hostiles, and is actually from 2017. There is actually no source for the quote that Matt attributes to Joseph Stalin, one death of the tragedy, a million is a statistic. It seems to originate from Eric Maria Remarque's 1956 novel Der Obelisk, or The Black Obelisk. The music featured in this episode was The Streets of Laredo, as sung by Sammy Smith, Indian Love by Maestro Sam Wooding, Isus Chocolate Kiddies, Brendan Gleeson singing an Irish version of The Streets of Laredo from the film The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and to close things out, as always, Anything Goes, done by Patrick, a solo orchestra.